Nightingale. Welcome to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand, where we talk to successful founders and CEOs about how they made it. The challenges, the triumphs, the ups, the downs, and the key moments along the way when their business had to adapt to reach the status of brand legend. Piper reckons those inflection points can be simplified to 71770, whether that's millions in turnover, or perhaps numbers of staff, and maybe retail sites. 71770 indicates the points where a pivot has to happen to enable a brand to thrive. Today's guest is Will Butler-Adams, CEO of Britain's biggest bike manufacturer, Brompton, maker of the famous folding bike that deconstructs in about 20 seconds, making it portable on public transport or easily tucked away in a quiet corner at work. The business builds about 100,000 of them a year by hand at its Greenford base. It sells about 75% of those overseas and is currently punching through the £70 million a year mark in turnover, a great British success story. Welcome, Will. Good morning. Just before we start on the Brompton story, put it into perspective. Where do you sit on this 71770 scale? Well, I joined when there were 35 of us. We were making about 5,000 bikes. Our run rate at the moment is just tipping 100,000. So we are still growing quite fast. And uh, we took on... In the last 18 months, about just over 250 staff. So where are the inflection point? I've no idea because it's happening so fast. I I don't even quite know where we are. You know, we're just holding on tight. (laughs) All right. Explain to our listeners more about Brompton. So most of us live in cities. And um, that's happened over the last 50, 60, 70 years, depending on where you are in the world, this net migration to cities. And Andrew, the inventor of the Brompton, was one of those people when he left Cambridge. It's Andrew Ritchie, isn't it? Andrew Ritchie, yeah. He is now about 76, so it was quite a while ago. And he is a super bright inventor. I mean, proper genius. He had no interest in making money. He just wanted one. So he set about coming up with the idea and designing it. And inadvertently, in designing something for himself, he designed something that was tremendously useful for other people. What's so magical about this little folding bike is that it makes your life a bit happier, a bit more enjoyable. Um, It makes you feel good. It gives you a sense of freedom. It allows you to explore your city. And actually, there aren't many products, notwithstanding all the stuff they tell us in the papers, in the newspaper, whenever we turn on our phone about how this is going to change your life. Most of them don't. Most of them are overrated tat. But this little thing really does make you happier. It does bring you freedom. It makes you feel great. And that is the secret. And it's relevant in London. It's relevant in Seoul. It's relevant in LA. It's relevant in cities all over the world. And we need to change how we live in our cities. If we've learned nothing in the last difficult and tragic sort of nearly two years, we did learn that how we lived in our cities on reflection through lockdown wasn't something that we wanted. And we need to rethink that. And I think the bicycle in particular, our little folding bike, has a a, a large part to play. For anyone who hasn't seen a Brompton bike, can can you explain it? Can you describe it? Yes. So basically, it's sort of the Swiss army knife of bicycles. You know, it's a bicycle and then it disappears. I mean, you, you said 20 seconds, you know, world record, sub five. 
I'm rolling in at around seven and a half. Um, but sub 10, you know, day in, day out is not too difficult once you get the hang of it. But what's so great about it is it just disappears and then it reappears when you want it. And it, it's so awesome. I'm six foot four. I've got long gangly legs. But this thing just whizzes and it's nimble and it's fast. And then you can, if you really can't be bothered, you can jump on the bus or on the tube when you get home. You don't need to drag it through the house or take it up, you know, clamber upstairs. You just want in, pop it in the left, and there it is. And mine is just over there. And you go to a restaurant or a shop, it doesn't get stolen. I mean, the thing's awesome, and it becomes part of your life. You can't live without it. And you are obviously a complete enthusiast, but you weren't there at the birth of no. this bike. That was 1975 or so, wasn't it? Um, what were you doing before you joined Brompton? I um, studied mechanical engineering with Spanish at Newcastle, spent a year out in industry, worked in Valladolid, then worked in Madrid. Um, actually, I studied in Valladolid and then worked for Nissan in Madrid. Um, and then I did a year working with uh, CalSonic, first tier supplier to Nissan Sunderland. Um, then I got this job in Middlesbrough and I loved it. I had the best time with wonderful people. And I thought I was just going to be there for six months until I could find another job. And I was there for nearly six years and loved it. But after six years, it was time to move on. I was busy studying for my GMAT. And then bizarrely, I met this guy on a bus who was the chairman of Brompton, which was hardly a huge accolade because the company was quite small, but really the great friend of Andrew. They'd been at Cambridge together. And we got chatting. I mean, totally pretty random stuff. And he was in finance, which I thought was boring. And then he asked me what I did. And I said, oh, well, I'm an engineer. And then excellently, he rattles on about this friend. He's making these bikes. And, 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 and you how must long come ago was see. this? What year was this? This was 2001. Mm-hmm. And so more out of intrigue, I went down to have a look, met Andrew. I mean, Andrew is a flipping legend. But he is, you know, he's got one trouser tucked into his sock because He's not going to tuck it in at the beginning of the day, then take it out and then tuck it in. So he'll walk around the entire day with the right hand sock tucked in because obviously that's going to stop his trousers getting caught up in his chain. And um, I didn't know anything about the bike, never heard of it, never seen it. But what I was interested in was engineering, process, op, you know, lean. And I wandered in there and I thought, my word, this is like a time warp, you know, machinery that looked like it was 50, 60, 70 years old and hand fly presses. And I just thought, my God, I can I can do something. There is no definitely I can do something here and make it more efficient. And I thought I'd do, you know, a couple of years, um, have an interesting time, live in London. I mean, I've been brought up in the north of England and then go back to do my MBA. And that was nearly 20 years ago. And I'm still having fun with this bicycle. So you were not the founder, but you it seems like you fell in love with it pretty soon. But you strike me as something of an entrepreneur. You know, you have that attitude about you, you have that kind of buzz. Is there anything in your background that would have set you up to be an entrepreneur, do you think? So I had a very, very privileged upbringing, but with no money, if that makes sense. So I never had any pocket money. I was always, you know, I was surrounded by people who seemed to have lots of money. I never had any. So I had to earn it, always. And uh, right when I was at my very first school, I was flogging stuff, beer mats. Dad was, in, had, was involved in wine and pubs. So I got beer mats. I flogged them. I got beer towels and I got mum to sew the beer towels together. And I sold these bedspreads. Um, you know, I, I was always trying to find ways to make money because I didn't have any. And, and then when I went to uni um, in my first year in halls, 
I started working out, you know, just basic maths, what I was going to pay in rent. So I thought, my God, I'm sure. And we all, you know, we all decided we were going to, we were going to live together, did the maths. I thought, I, I can't believe I'm going to pay this to someone else. So then I ended up deciding that I was going to try and buy a house. And um, I got dad to lend me 10 grand. I took out an, a technically illegal mortgage because it was a self-certified mortgage. You weren't allowed to declare income from, uh, from tenants in those days. The buy-to-let mortgages didn't exist. And I just got stuck in. And then in my second year of university, the first house had gone up. I borrowed more, put that as a deposit on the second, did the third, got my friends to help do them up, ended up buying five properties in Newcastle, which I still have, Shagpile Carpet, Students. It was called Pucker Properties. I used to take my marketing plan was I took the team on the Pucker Property Punter Piss Up, which was a free <laughs> night out. And then, that was, and then they got the new students. And if it wasn't for those properties, I wouldn't have any real equity in Brompton because I leveraged those to the hilt because everything I've got is in Brompton. Just take us back to that moment that you first got involved. Just define what was the opportunity, do you think, oh, that gosh. you saw? What was the potential that you spied in Brompton? Oh, I mean, it was, to me, obvious. I can't believe it would be obvious to anyone else. I was just the lucky person who happened to be invited to have a look round. But, I mean, we didn't have a website. Everything was done at MS-DOS. This is not 1972. This is 2002. Andrew signed everything, paid for it with a cheque. There were no meetings. There was no budget. There was no strategy. Andrew's philosophy was we just did our best. And initially, that was what attracted me. But, of course, then I started using this bike. And when you're on a bike, it, you just have this phenomenal sense of freedom. And that joy of the bike then sort of infected me and I got more and more committed. And initially, inside the factory, I just needed to clear out all the crap and try and identify in the early days what's core and what's non-core. And, and to establish what contained Brompton DNA and was really, really clever and, and made the customer feel special and which things we could let somebody else do. And Andrew was a perfectionist and he is sort of, a megalomaniac is not the right word, but from a design perspective, he wanted to control everything. He didn't trust anyone else. So, for example, we had a, a little bit of wire that's on the bike and they came in bits of wire cut to length We'd set up this fly press. You're indicating about, what, five centimetres length? Yeah, yeah, something like five centimetres, maybe a bit more. And then you'd, you, you, we had um, Bob, who used to run the fly press, because you needed to be flipping strong. And you'd stick... What's a fly press? Well, it's a basically 95, 100-year-old, 150-year-old thing, uh, which basically squidges stuff. And you'd put the bit of wire in, and you set it up on a fixture, a little jig, and it would do, put a bend in it, the same little bend, boop. And then you'd do a thousand of those, boom, 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 boom. And you'd have to put your fingers in, pick it up, take it out, put it. I mean, the whole thing, how you didn't get your end of your fingers nipped off. <laughs> and then, of course, you'd change it all up and you'd set it up for a slightly different bend. And then you'd do it again. So you'd get the first bend in, then the second bend, then the third bend. And we'd like had four stage tool, which is what you talk about, to get the full configuration that you needed for, for the bike, for example. Now, you know, apart from the fact that you needed Bob to do it. And if Bob had, had, had not actually had a good night and was a bit tired, you know, the first uh, 950 would be good, but the last 50 wouldn't have quite pulled it hard enough and they wouldn't be quite bent enough. But, but also, there's a guy in the Midlands who has a CNC bending machine. He can bang these things out, you know, three a second. Everyone is perfect, done by a machine. That is not core to us. We can take that away and we can take our staff who have the knowledge and skill to focus on the really value add stuff and then 
get more output by using that team to focus on the stuff that's really unique to us. And so pretty early on, I got involved in running the shop floor because I'm a people person. I, I started setting about, I'm very fair, but very firm and set out a, a way in which we were going to run and we were going to have reviews and we were going to set, set targets. And we started measuring and we started setting ambition. Then I cleared out one of the rooms, which was full of crap, tons of stuff. Then I went to a secondhand store because Andy wouldn't let me do it. I did it all myself, cleared it all out, hired a skip, got a hoover, hoovered the floor, dusted it all down. Then I went to the Army Navy store, bought some, a secondhand table and some chairs, you know, to have a meeting room. And then I said, right, we're going to have this meeting and it's called 25K. And everybody said, well, 25K, what's that? And now we're doing about 5,000 bikes at the time. Well, that's how many bikes we're going to make. Well, we can't do that. It's a stupid name for a meeting. It's <laughs> completely ridiculous. We can't do 25K. And, and I said, yes, we can. We can do it. You know, So it, the battle for that particular meeting was, by the time we had the first meeting, I, I'd won. Because they turned up to a 25K meeting. I mean, the, just, just the name of it was the, was the battle. Once they got their head around it, it might be possible, we were off. What you describe is, you, you know, it all, all seems very charming and there's enthusiasm and there's momentum and so on. But I'm wondering how did Bob and his mates and Andrew Ritchie, the founder, who described a little bit of a megalomaniac, a perfectionist, how did he react to this whippersnapper coming in and clearing out his storerooms? I mean, he might so, have thought he wanted it, but did he oh really? No. Well, you see, I mean, we have a very, uh, sort of, I imagine typical founder successor relationship and um and it's one where we have huge respect for each other but i drive andrew potty and he drives me potty i adore him but the only way you can succeed in this type of industry is you need succession and you need i could not in a million years have even started to 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 deliver what andrew did but equally, he could not have done what I have done in taking his masterpiece and growing the business. And that transition and juxtaposition, if you like, is a fragile one. And it, I was more or less running the business by about 2006. Having joined in 2002, I joined the board. I mean, the board meetings, they just were a joke. You know, we used to go around to either Tim or Christopher's house and drink wine and potter around. And then I had to try and come up with a plan for a, a, a management buyout. You know, no one was thinking of it. None of them, they just thought we were going to carry on. But I had ambition. And um, in fact, with the help of some of our shareholders, I ended up getting introduced to Fleming's family and partners. And we danced around with them. And we had one of these board meetings. And uh, I'd said at the board meeting, um, you know, uh, somebody's approached us and they're interested in potentially buying you know, Brompton. And oh, what, sorry, a bit more wine. Um, yes, yes, what was that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I sort of said, well, um, shall I see what, they're, what, the, what they might be prepared to pay? What, a bit more wine? Oh, well, why not? And I was, of course, minuting these sort of ramshackle <laughs> board meetings. So I said, you know, I then disappeared off with FF&P for three months. I worked my socks off and we came back with a full on, like this fat proposal, which included the entire board Andrew, the lot going, FF&P piling in, putting me in as CEO, giving me a load of options, and yippee classic sort of buyout job. So then that's sort of three. Right, chaps, um, you know, board meeting, who's opening the wine? 
uh, well, I've got the, 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 that company have come back with a, uh, what they're prepared to pay. And I plonked it on the table. And they're like, what? What? We, we, we never said this, you know. No, 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 no. But of course, you can't get a valuation unless you do the work. And that thing, that, that offer, we were never going to sell to FF&P. It wouldn't have happened in a million years because it's just not the way our culture is. But it formed a catalyst for creating a, a, a structure in which I could then find funding. We didn't have a takeover. We stayed together as a team. But what I needed for myself was I needed Andrew to relinquish control. So that tr- getting that through was the probably most important thing I did in the time. And, and probably the most difficult thing. I mean, how much hostility did you encounter with that? Funny how much enough, resistance? No, it, it wasn't too hostile because ultimately Andrew could just say no. It's not, like, it's not like some aggressive takeover. I mean, he owned the company. But it allowed me not to then have control because I was a minority shareholder. And I, as I said, borrowed every penny I could get, scraped money from friends, friends from uni, you know, family, p- piled it all in to take... Andrew's stake down from like 60% to 20. And then we have a lovely motley crew of ownership at Brompton now. So Andrew's still the largest shareholder. His, his friends invested in him back in the 70s. There, a lot of them still there, all their children. And then we have me and my mates. And now our staff own about 20%. So you've got this motley crew uh, uh, on the board and so on, the ownership. How do you all get the best out of each other? How does it actually work? Life is imperfect. And you think because you read about it. And and in fact, actually, because most people in business somehow want to make themselves sound fantastic when we're not fantastic. We're bundling along. And it isn't some amazingly thought through plan. And it isn't some perfectly slick and dynamic board. It's a bunch of people with their own little ideas and their fears. and, And you sort of muddle along. But I think all of us, I mean, we all have our weaknesses, but... What are yours? Oh, I'm way too enthusiastic. You know, I'm far too optimistic. I, I, I'm like charging off at 100 miles an hour, not really thinking about the consequences. If I don't have a good team behind me, I'd be a disaster. If there were five of me running this company, we'd have gone nosedive two seconds flat. We, we were different characters. And, you know, our, our chair was Tim, Tim Guinness, who I met on that bus. And he was our chair for 19 years. So... You know, and he was amazing in the early days because it was a more like, even though we had non-execs, which is unusual for, for a business that small. And I would really recommend anyone with a business to bring in non-execs early. I would also recommend anyone with a small business to get EMI options. Options were key to my staying with the company, me recruiting brilliant people because we couldn't afford good people. We didn't have the money. But options allowed us to get people in and tie them in for a decent chunk of time. And it's been brilliant. And it means now we've got a lovely amount of the company owned by our staff. But when I took over... I was still like the schoolboy and we had Andrew there and Tim there and, you know, I get went into board meetings and it was like Prime Minister's question time. It was me and sort of three non-execs just whapping me around the head, asking me all like all million questions as if I knew what I was talking about. And, you know, in the early days that sort of worked, but it got pretty tiring for me and then I managed to recruit some people and we had a bit more of a balanced board. Um, and But it's been, a, it was a fight I had to drag, kicking and streaming, my 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 chair, the founder, literally pulling them forward because they would fear and they weren't ambitious enough and they didn't believe enough. And they're always worrying about, you know, oh, well, I'm not sure we could do that. I mean, it's so easy to say no in life. 
No is just not a good thing. Yes is, is get off your ass and do stuff. And if you find yourself, you're a no person, you need to look yourself in the mirror and say, I need to say yes more. I need to do more because we're going to be dead in a minute. The great thing is I'm slightly obsessed with death because, which doesn't sound a bit morbid, but if you're, if you're very aware that you're going to die, it means you've got to cram everything in. You know, you can't dilly-dally. We've got stuff to do. We've got experiences to have. We've got business. We've got to make this world a little bit better. We can't hang around because life is just just slipping away. And you can't not take risk. And if it all goes pear-shaped, who cares? You're talking about, you know, the leadership team here. Yes. What I'm wondering is what about the workforce? What about Bob and his mates? How, how did they respond to this whirlwind uh, uh, arriving? People are all the same. Everybody has ambition. Everybody wants to feel empowered. Everybody wants to look back and say, wow, I did that. I delivered that. Now, I am a massive delegator. And I have staff who I've known for 20 years. We've now got 750 staff. There were 35 when I joined. I probably lost track of everybody's name at about 350. But I still am learning more names. So, you know, I just can't keep up. And if you recognise what amazing talent you have in your organisation and you respect people absolutely for who they are and you trust them and you demonstrate what is possible and where we're going, people will just love it. But you've got to take risk. You've got to not treat everybody like they're trying to nick stuff, not um, expect tell people everything as if they're so stupid they can't work it out for themselves. Say, listen, this is where we're going. And they go to you because people go, right, so what do you want me to do? My stock answer to that is, I've got no bloody idea. That's why I employed you. I don't, I'm not, don't ask me what to do. Your job is that. That's why you're the expert. So giving people responsibility and, and, yeah. and trusting them. But what about training and, and apprenticeships? Because yep. presumably there are huge skills involved in building yes. these things. Yes. So when a company is little, really there is training. And, and, and Andrew used to train everybody including me, and I spent time well, um, brazing, which I'm not very good at. What is brazing? What does a brazer do? Brazing is a wonderful, very old joining technique. It's light welding, but the difference is you have two bits of metal, and with welding, you have a filler metal, and you melt the other two pieces, and all three melt together, and you bond. Brazing's more like soldering, a bit more like glue. Brazing requires more skill. It's a more delicate process. But because you're doing it at less heat, about 850 degrees, about 1300 for, for, for welding, you're in weakening the metal less. So therefore, if you're in weakening the metal less, you can have a thinner wall tube. If you have a thinner wall tube, make a lighter bike. And that really matters. We're obsessed with weight because you've got to carry this bike. Uh, you, how, how much does a Brompton bike weigh? Well, I mean, it weighs anywhere from about um, 9.5 kilos up to, well, our electric is 13 kilos because it's got an electric motor in it. Uh, but we are permanently trying to get weight down. A bicycle, no matter what people say, it's just about turning leg power into forward movement as efficiently as possible. If you get that right, it's a very, it feels nice. It's like, like having a nice jacket that's well made. It just fits and feels lovely. You don't quite know why, but it just does. And... 
To get that right, alignment is very important. And less heat creates less distortion, which improves the alignment. OK, so this is a highly skilled job. Highly which brings skilled us job. back to training, to training yeah. and apprenticeships. And, yes. and where does all that come from and how do you manage that and how, how so, key is it? I mean, well, it's terribly key. And, and what happens is when you're little, you, you rely a lot on word of mouth. And I mean, Andrew, had um, he wrote Encyclopedia Bromptonica. Um, I mean, the most unbelievable, enormous tomes of technical detail. The trouble is, I mean, nobody's going to read it. And so we've gone on a journey and we actually have our own academy inside Brompton. It's called the Brompton Academy. It's our own team. We have all of our cinematographers. We have voiceovers. So we make tremendous amounts of, of stuff that is very easy for our staff to understand. So they will have training when they join us, but they want to refer back to it. They have a whole uh, academy of information to help them learn. And we now have a, our own in-house training plan. And um, business is about risk. It's so much about risk. Ambition and risk. You've got to have lofty ambition and you've got to be prepared to take risk. Life is about risk. And let's just say you want to go to this lovely beach in Cornwall. And there's a ginormous gorse bush. Now, one approach is to pick your way through the gorse bush with those little yellow flowers, perfect, you know, every little step, pick, pick, and guess what? You come out the other end, not a little scratch. But it takes you three hours, by which time the sun's gone down and you've missed it. My approach is there is a gorse bush. There is a lovely beach. I like, fuck it, <laughs> run through this thing really fast, get a few scratches, not very nice, but I mean, I'm done. And then I'm going to have a brilliant time and I know the scratches aren't going to kill me. And that is so much to do with life and business. You've got to be prepared to take some shrapnel. And there have been times when we as a team, we said, guys, we're going to take some risk. We did that 18 months ago when we came out of lockdown, having been very scared and worried about our future and all sorts of amazing things. We've never stopped making bikes throughout. But we came out and we saw... An opportunity, I mean, a rethink of the world. We've got a climate emergency. We've got people having an experience of living in a city that, that they've never experienced before. How a city could be, where the air quality improves, where there aren't cars on every corner, where suddenly people feel like it's a place to be with a family and bring up, you know, children. It's delightful. And they've tasted that possibility and they want more of it. And so we decided we were going to go for it. And I got my team around and said, right, guys, are we going to take some risk here? You know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is the time to go for it. Everyone in? Right. And we went for it. So that's why we, we took our savings. I spent 15 years saving up money in the business, not distributing it, looking after the cash. And we have just gone for it. And we have piled in. And it is scary. We are right in the thick of it at the moment. And it's very exciting, but quite scary. All right. Describe what being in the thick of it is. What, what, what are the milestones? What, what is the growth that you've gone through? What are the risks that you've taken in this last so couple of years? We'd saved up um, about £15 million of cash, which is quite a lot of money. We've never raised cash ever. The, so you've grown time. organically all the way through? All the way through. So we've had, in 20 years, we've grown at about sort of, I don't know, 18% a year compound. We've never raised capital. Um, we're still privately owned. That gives us tremendous season. And we have no debt and we had this cash. We decided to go for growth and to invest in brilliant people. And it was a great time to do it because 
after the first lockdown, there was amazing talent available. It's bizarre. 18 months later, it's completely changed. But we managed to acquire some amazing people in the organization. But we had anticipated that the effects of lockdown would have sorted themselves out by now. We weren't expecting them to still be here. And what that has meant is our cash has been absolutely smashed to smithereens. Logistics. Normally, we have about five million quids worth of stuff in metal boxes, either raw material bobbing about on the sea on the way into us or finished bikes bobbing on the sea, leaving us. Because logistics times have nearly doubled, that five million quid of cash has suddenly become 10 million quid of cash. We had Brexit. We lost a thousand bikes. Lost. Gone. Disappeared. We shipped them to Europe and they got lost. Couldn't find them. Where have they gone? Nobody, you know, all to do with all the paperwork and they went to they you know, Holland, then they got spat back. No one could find them. Are they still, still lost? Still lost 150. We've got 850 back. And guess where they were? Going round and round on a conveyor belt for three months. Imagine what they looked like when they came back to us. Complete carnage. And of course, guess what? They're only insured for 60 quid. So, you know, you can kiss goodbye to a whole load of time, energy, repair, de-de-de-de. Logistics is, is, is gone pear-shaped. Supply chain's up the Khyber. And, um... Our entire line's going to stop because we're missing a part. So we have to fly it in. We don't like flying it in. I mean, two years ago, we spent 45 grand flying stuff in. Only the exception. This year, we'll spend 1.8 million flying stuff in. So we don't have three or 400 people not, with nothing to do. I mean, trading at the moment is phenomenal. Our supply chain, we used to be able to get whatever we liked. And the buyer was king. But now... The supplier is king. So we piled in at the very moment when we thought we were just going to get through and push out the other side. And it's like, whoa. And then we ran out of one part for six weeks. That cost us two and a half million quid of lost revenue. And then the other 1,100 parts were still coming in, but we couldn't turn them into bikes. So again, cash. So it's exciting. It's hairy. But, you know, that's what life's about. And you I'm love learning. it, don't you? You love all of that, the roller coaster and the ups and the downs. and the... I mean, I sort you of love it. You get a thrill out of it, I think. Well, I'd personally rather have not had it. When things go wrong, that's when you have to be more positive. When things don't go according to plan, that's not the time to retrench. Funny enough, when everything's going well, I'm calm and I'm quiet and I'm less positive. But you are responsible, aren't you, for this team of... 750 yes. staff, Bob and his mates. Yes. And, and I just wonder, some people, that responsibility weighs very heavily on them. It, it doesn't weigh heavily on me because I trust my team so much. They're fantastic people. I mean, you know, it, it, they are more than capable. And I believe in them so strongly because we have such a strong commitment to each other. And that will mean that we're likely to produce a product with more care, with more attention, with genuine thought and feeling. And not only that, once you have the product, we have a brand that is respected, not just because of the bike, but it's because of you have a 15-year-old bike. We're there. We've got all the spare parts. We'll look after you. We, we, something goes wrong. We've got the tiniest worry about something. We will look after you. And... We care about our staff. Capitalism is going a bit funny. It's gone a bit awry. It has been driven by phenomenal greed. And people who haven't contributed enough are, 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 are taking away way too much wealth. And it's not pretty. And, and it's not right. And 
I think the consumer is is beginning to get bored of it, and they want to see a form of capitalism that is good for society and good for the planet. Our mission as a company is not shareholder value, it's not profit. Is is we want to create urban freedom. We want to make people happier. That is our measure of success. You're listening to the Piper Podcast, talking to Will Butler Adams of Brompton Bikes. Back to the idea of the brand legend, Piper believes that it's about what makes a brand better and different to its competitors. So what makes Brompton better and different? I'm not that interested in competition. I'm interested in my customer. I'm interested in my staff because they are the brand. And... In most cases, you just need to be good. You need to be honourable, honest, fair, reliable. And, and, and if it breaks, say, really sorry, we, we, we'll care for you. If, if something wears out, we've got a spare part. Try and give good service. And when you get it wrong, say, look, we, we, we got it wrong. And be honest. I mean, honesty probably within our business is... is, is one of honesty and modesty are, are really important traits within our business and both for our staff and our customer. And I think, you know, but it's not some great brand building. Um, people think brand building is amazing logos and fantastic marketing campaigns. Brand building is someone coming in with an 18-year-old bike and, you know, us caring for them, looking after them and sending them on their way. And, 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 and brand is, is determined by your customers, not by you. It's when they interact with you, when they talk to their friends and tell you that they love this thing and they, that you must buy one. And that's what a brand is. Brompton isn't a toy. You know, oh, they're great, aren't they sweet? They're little wheels and they fold up. That thing you're going down, you know, a road and it breaks. It's not funny. These are not toys. These are very, very serious bits of kit. And when you buy a bike... You're buying a serious bit of kit. So you want to trust the person that you're buying it from. It doesn't really matter in year one. It'll be fine. But it's in year four, five, eight, ten that you need to worry. And, and that's what a brand is, is trust between your customer and you. Mm. And if they trust you, you have a brand. Who is your customer? Most people can ride a bike. You know... If a parent doesn't teach their child to ride a bike, they feel like they failed as a parent. It's like these one of these wonderful things we have. But then, of course, they, they obsess with the child being able to ride a bike. And then as soon as the child's 15, of course, you know, they never ride a bike again. I mean, it's completely bonkers. I think that is changing as it happens, fortunately. But our customer is driven by need geography. And the Brompton is not cheap. Absolutely not. But it's phenomenal value. People are paying money to go into a gym and pedal on a bike that goes nowhere. I mean, that's bonkers. You, 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 a Brompton will last you 15, 20 years. If, if, depending on how much you weigh and how often you use it, it might last you 50 years. That is what we're selling. And it is affordable. It's not cheap, but it's awesome value. And it makes you feel good. It keeps you fitter. It's good for your brain. I mean, you know, I can't be fiddling around on the phone. I'm just like in my sort of yoga moment when I'm on my bike. I'm just dumping stuff out of my brain and just clearing my head and whizzing along. 
I mean, it's, I mean, obviously I'm totally biased, but oh my God, it makes you feel better. You are such an unbelievably passionate uh, fan of these, which is wonderful. And I'm just wondering what, you know, how do you communicate that to your customers? That I don't, you communicate I don't, I don't, we don't communicate it. Our strategy has, has not been to be a communicator. Our strategy is to make an awesome bike and look after it for its entire life. The communication we've left to our customer, they do that for us. Our customers don't want us spending money having some trendy celebrity pretending they love Brompton and paying them four million quid. We all know that's rubbish. What we want to be doing is spending our money on making cool bikes. And if we're going to blow some money, blow it on some unbelievable bit of R&D that we thought would be amazing and it didn't work. I respect that. But what we need to do is focus on making and designing awesome bikes and looking after the customer. If we do that right, particularly today, more so than ever before because we have social media and the reach from our customers is so much greater than it used to be, the customer will do the rest. Okay, so you're talking about social media, though. You must have... Do you not communicate in any way? Yes, we do communicate and we do fancy photographs and we take content from our customers and augment it. Okay, so you do communicate. So what is... What I'm wondering is what is the tone of voice? The tone of voice is just honesty. You know, I mean, we had a classic customer. This is an example of something we did, which was so much fun. A customer in New York. Basically, he periodically, probably two or three times a month, would pedal his bike to the Hudson, carrying a folding canoe behind him. Then he'd unfold the canoe, fold his Brompton, put it in the boat, then row across the Hudson to Manhattan and then cycle to his office at um, Amazon. And I went to New York and I did it with him, the two of us. And I rode across the Hudson in this thing that was tiny. It was like the size of a bath with my Bromley in the front. We stopped across the Hudson. We had bacon sandwiches and a flask of coffee. It was pretty cold and very wavy. And there was this massive queue of people hooting and horning on the Hudson Bridge. And then we got across to the other side and and pedaled with our little canoes behind us, 70 blocks down to the Amazon HQ. And that was all because we discovered this guy because he'd posted a video online and we got in touch with him. And then we actually made a fantastic video and we we told his story. And we've done that with other customers. And, And also we do events. We do the Brompton World Championships. That's where we have heats around the world where where people race on Bromptons and then the male and female winners from each heat are flown to London for the world championships. We're on the mall. The mall is closed. We've got 600 Bromies all folded up on the mall. You're not allowed to wear Lycra. You have to wear a jacket and tie. You (laughs) leg it to your Bromie. You unfold it and it's a 16 kilometre race. 550 Bromies going round. It's nuts. And they're surprised for the best-dressed male and best-dressed female. Obviously, we haven't done it for a year or two. And that's insane. And we've got people with head cams, bum cams, you know, social media, tweet, 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 WeChat, Instagram. That'll do. Has your customer base changed over time? I think I've read somewhere that that your customers are getting younger. I know you're not talking about age, but let's talk about the stats on this. Yes, they've definitely got younger. We have a generation who are much more interested in how they live. 
It's the generation that are thinking about the environment. They're thinking about their work-life balance. They don't need to own a car. They don't need to own loads of things. They can, they'll own things that they really need and the rest they'll use it when they need it. Do, do you do audience research? So, I mean, we are getting bigger. I mean, I, I am sort of anti-marketing. I'm anti yeah, I, I'm picking that up. Flipping, I'm picking that up, Will. You know, research. Um, but, of course, I employ people who are better than me. I employ people who know more than me. So I might be anti it. doesn't mean we don't do it because we've employed people who know more than I do. But I think... And it has been difficult, and we do. I do feel it because we haven't been able to travel. But you can do research, and re- research has value. So, and my team listen to this. I need to say that, otherwise I'll get into serious trouble. But <laughs> more than that is you need to spend time with your customer. You need to get out there. You need to get on your bike. And every, you know, every traffic light, if I see a Brompton customer, I'll talk to them. You've got to get stuck in and, and engage with your, 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 your customers. Do, I mean, do, do you think there is a Brompton community? And I know, I mean, clearly you're going to talk to anyone with a Brompton, but do do fellow Brompton owners, uh, you know, hail mm. each other at traffic lights? Do they? We, we used to because, you you know, in the very early days, you were definitely slightly out there. Um, and so if you had the confidence to ride a Brompton uh, in, you know, 2003, when I first started riding, there was a little bit of a sort of tip the wink, you know, we're in the know. These things are super cool. Some people might look at us in a slightly weird way. That's their problem because these are flipping cool. I mean, in London, where we are strongest globally, the bike has become so endemic and and, and part of, you know, I, I, I'd get, people think I get repetitive strain injury or something <laughs> if I was winking at everybody. It's incredibly satisfying. I mean, you know, the thing that gives me the greatest joy is seeing somebody on our bike. But it is still quite expensive at £800 or so. And that represents great value for money, you say. But there mm. will be whole swathes of people who could never, ever dream of owning an £800. Totally, pound totally and utterly so, disagree. So, so no, if, no, 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 I disagree. But hang on a minute, though, because if you're looking into a city that really has a low per capita earning, how are they going? Oh. You want to transform cities, no. but do you oh. not think you need to go in lower no. cost no. to get more of them out there? How many, how many iPhones are being sold in the world? How many? Gazillions. Yeah, we're selling, this year, if we're lucky, 90,000 bikes in a global population of 8 billion. But you have an ambition, don't you, to transform the way we live in cities. Yes, and And we've done that in London. Which is brilliant. Yes. But in order to do that worldwide, do you need to make a cheaper version of your bike in order to get a bigger spread? No. I come back. Is the iPhone cheap? No. Why are people buying it in their millions? Because it's useful. The thing we make is phenomenally useful. I can't live without it. If I made it cheaper, it would not be so useful. What I'm interested in is making something that's so useful. It's amazing value. In terms of affordability, how do you buy it? Do you pay for it over two years? The thing's going to last 20 you know, if it's costing you 30 quid, how many gym memberships are there in cities around the world where people are paying more than you'd pay to own a really beautifully made Brompton folding bike? So is that part of your plan then, to think about different ways of people buying these? Well, that already exists. Governments are introducing cycle-to-work schemes. You can buy interest-free credit over 24 months and pay them monthly. We have our bike hire scheme. You can jump on a Brompton for £5 a day. 
It's a £5 membership. We have subscription. So one of the reasons we introduced a bike hire scheme, which we did in the UK 10 years ago, is one, because we want to engage a community that can afford it if they so wish, but they don't see the value in the product. So if you then allow somebody at a low, very low barrier to entry to take it home, to use it for a week, two weeks, and then like, oh my word, this is awesome. Now I get it. Now I can see the value. Now I can justify investing some of my precious earnings in buying one of these products. But if we can't communicate the value, which, which is a communication challenge, they might, they might be just the right customer and they would love it, but they never did get it because they didn't understand how it could transform their life. So you're not just selling the bike, you're selling a trust. So we're trying, but cheap isn't what the world needs. What we need is value. Mm. I want to take you back to these inflection points that, that you would identify. And what was tough and what went wrong? I think um, self-confidence is, is it gets hit. And you have to keep talking to yourself and believing in yourself. Because actually a lot of people don't believe in you. And so it is slightly lonely. And, um, you know, I've had to have plenty of words with myself, particularly when I start getting glum. Mm. So I think in the early days, there were times when I was like, oh, Jesus, you know, I was just battered, beaten. And that was pretty tough. You know, I felt some of the political elements and, and whether you like it or not, particularly with family-owned businesses, which this is, there is a political element, is quite tough. This is back to the, the idea of being a CEO in, in a founder's business. You know, is, the, is there a sense, do you think, a different dimension to it in that you always feel like a bit of a, an interloper, a bit of, bit, of, no. bit of a stranger? No. No. Andrew simply could not have done the job that I have done. Impossible. And I know I couldn't have done what he did. I mean, he spent 13 years designing this bike. We're a team, and the company wouldn't be here without both of us, no question about that. So there is no, absolutely no interloping at all. What's Andrew's involvement now? How does that relationship work today? So in 2008, I took over as CEO, and then, and then effectively we took, or I took Andrew out of all operational control, and he got involved in a, a really big, real technical challenge which was to do with our pricing and then Excel spreadsheets and spreadsheets and he loved it and right up his street because he could get really deep into it and we just got on with running the business. Then in 2015 he stepped out of any sort of day-to-day involvement and was then a non-exec on the board but what happened was and this has been a challenge for Andrew and I'm sure he'll freely admit it he found it very hard to enjoy himself so eventually we all said to him, Andrew, look, this is not making you happy. You know, you're sitting on the board and you're just worrying about everything. Then Rob came in. Um, but I think when he has a moment to reflect, he's proud of what we've done. And it is a we. Um, it's a monstrous team effort. And we're still just beginning. So, so, so who's Rob? So Rob is the son of one of Andrew's great friends, super smart, business mind, loves Brompton, 
So Rob effectively came in to be Andrew in the board and allow Andrew to have that interface without him panicking and, and, and getting involved. So Rob's been with us since 2015 and, 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 and keeps us on the straight and narrow and, and, and brings insight and challenge to the executive team. Is there anything that you wish you had done earlier, invested in earlier? You're a big fan of non-execs and so on. But you know, I'm just wondering, is it marketing or people, technology? The journey you take is not linear. It's, in many cases, wiggly. We could have been more ambitious earlier. But, you know, we don't live in a perfect world, so I wouldn't change anything. Um, but I think that... My advice to anyone in any business is life is short. If you believe in something, you've got to take risk and you've got to go for it. And, 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 and don't be so protective. And, and for myself, the team are doing things, we're quite a big team now, that I don't always agree with. And as soon as I hear myself over-managing them, you know, a little thing on my shoulder says, do you mind shutting up, Will? That's why you employed them. Give them a steer, tell them what you're worried about, but let them make the decisions. Where does the culture come from? Is it driven from the shop floor up? Does it no, come, from, come the from the it comes down? absolutely from the top down. I don't do anything at Brompton anymore. My operational role is basically zero. My role now is leadership. It is, it is telling people and giving people the confidence and the ambition for where we're going, and it is ensuring the culture is right. I am in the factory nearly every single day. I do quarterly calls with the team in China, with the team in America, with the team in Europe. They can ask me anything they like. During lockdown, I did a video every single day. The team know who I am. I am honest. They know how, they know how much cash we've got in the bank. They know how much profit we made. There are no, they can ask me anything they like. And, and that sense of, honesty, the, the ability to respect people, to be care, care about staff. It's terribly important that you are as visible and you give people confidence and you need to be vulnerable. You need to be weak as a leader because if as a leader you are perfect, as all these leaders try to be, and if you never make a mistake, nobody else will be allowed to make mistakes. Nobody else will be allowed to be anything. Perfect, and then you won't learn. So everyone knows that I'm not perfect and that I need them to succeed. And that allows our team to, to be empowered and to support the business. We've grown just under 20% a year for, for nearly 20 years that I've been there. If you do the maths and carry on from where we are now, 75, 100 mil, you know, it gets quite big. And... We need to be big if we're going to have an impact on society. We are and have changed the culture of London. You can't spend any time in London without seeing our bike. It's, it's had an effect in how people live in London. We've done the same in Brussels, in Barcelona, and a little bit in New York. But we have not even scratched the surface. We are in 47 countries. We're in a world where mayors are taking cars out, where they're putting cycle lanes in, where we're rethinking how, how we want to live in our cities. So I don't know quite where we're going to be, but, but I know that where we are at the moment, we haven't even started. And the potential for us to contribute to 
urban living is tremendous. And if we can continue to innovate and to come up with cooler products that are more useful, that add more value. And we've got so many ideas. We, we, we've got tons of stuff that we're working on. You know, it's all to play for. Will Butler-Adams, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure.